Listener, listen. We've got some fantastic photos in this episode. And you can see them while you're listening, if you'd like, by heading to thecity.nyc or finding The City on YouTube. You'll thank me later. It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, The City, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, here with the inimitable Alex Brooklyn for a conversation with photographer and also sometimes writer Stephen Yang, a fellow native New Yorker who's done some remarkable work for the New York Post and other outlets including some riveting and harrowing shots of drug users. Those including a feature about a former FDNY firefighter, David, now as a uh, 10 bag a day heroin habit. Stephen, thanks for joining us and let's jump right in. You've been shooting uh, Manhattan and a lot of Midtown through the worst of the pandemic and since. Uh, and that's a place that's gone through a lot of different iterations in a remarkably short period of time. Uh, do you wanna talk about what you've seen there how you've tried to uh, capture it in your work and your approach to uh, shooting New Yorkers out in the streets and composing those shots. Sure. I love uh, Midtown Manhattan. It's really the the place that I'm drawn to the most in the city, um, primarily primarily because um, there's just so many different types of people that, that go to Midtown. And you don't have to walk very far in order to find um, huge disparities between people and because it's also a tourist destination, people are really, they just are used to cameras and they, they just don't care about being photographed. And more often than not, there are other people photographing as well. So it doesn't feel as intrusive in some ways. Um, during the pandemic, it was really a great place to be because it was so empty right? without any of the workers, the office workers the ecosystem collapsed. And so there were no vendors, there were no uh, stores, there were no restaurants, there were no bars, no happy hours, any of that stuff. So it was very eerie and and beautiful to walk around during that time. Not to mention it was about a 17 minute drive from Kew Gardens to uh, Midtown during that time. So that was, yeah. that was amazing. <laughs> um, I remember being at, you know, the middle of Midtown and there was like a, you know, I was waiting patiently at the light and then I realized I, I don't have to wait for this. There's no, <laughs> there are no cars, there are no pedestrians. So I just drove right through it. Um, it was great. Um, and, you know, since then, New York has recovered um, in a lot of ways, but there's still pockets that are left unattended. One thing I noticed starting during the George Floyd protests, the police were very selective about what they were going to enforce. Um, and then, and partly that was probably because of the pandemic and they were worried about being in close contact with people. But I found a huge difference with how the police were operating within a place like Midtown or with homeless people, with drug addicts, but also, you know, with the looting. Um, I was firsthand watching the, them not enforce any of the, the rules uh, or laws, um, choosing not to intervene with gangs and other people who are doing the wide scale looting. And then a day later, going after some unarmed protests with full force and baton swinging and whatnot. But 
to bring it back to Midtown, um, it's a place that I just am drawn to in general. And from a news standpoint, uh, being just settled in Midtown is a good place to be because you can easily uh, drive out of it or hop on the subway. Uh, you're centrally located um, and there's a lot of access to news events. So there were a lot of homeless people who were placed in hotels in Midtown during the pandemic. And that was interesting to see uh, when I came to the city, the newsroom, its offices were right there. So I get off at uh, Herald Square at 34th and ended up talking with a lot of the uh, people who are staying in hotels who all sort of then disappeared and were moved elsewhere in a pretty short period of time. Some of those hotels are now actually where some migrants are staying. Uh, but that was striking. And I also, you know, I'd see people who were just out on the streets, like not doing like the uh, the heroin knot where, where people lean back, but it's like they've got a string that's keeping them from falling. But it were just flat on the ground. And I was checking them to make sure people were alive and, you know, sort of embarrassed about it and not wanted to bother them. But uh, that was something I was not used to seeing in Midtown. Um, my brother at one point uh, when he was in New York saw, saw a pair of people uh, just having sex uh, right outside of, you know, the former uh, right by where the Macy's is and, and the Manhattan Mall. And, you know, at the same time, there were people out, things happening. It's recovered a bunch since in terms of having office people and tourists especially back. But there were also pot guys around, um, you know, just sort of selling. The police seemed really, really indifferent when I was there and working to a lot of these uh, activities in, in interesting ways. Like something had shifted after the pandemic with how they were dealing with this. So, so I'd like to key in on, on some of your photos, and uh, I know Alex is going to want to jump in with those, too. There was nothing more striking than Midtown in 2020 making such a, a huge shift from the busiest, most bustling place on Earth to completely empty. And to seeing the people who were out on the street were the... Were, um, it was a rare collection of people who needed to be out there from first responders to homeless people who were being, who didn't have hotel rooms yet, who were being uh, kicked out of conglomerate shelters at 8 a.m. every day, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the way you, you kind of captured it throughout the pandemic and after, um, I mean, also, and before I've been a fan of your work for a really long time, but it's really striking to have watched that almost like grow back. And uh, so getting into some of these, some of these incredible photos, one I really wanted to point out, um, especially dealing with some of the, the addicts, not all homeless people who got hotel rooms around 34th street were addicts, but often the ones that did have substance abuse problems would hang out in the provided tables and chairs outside. And you have this gorgeous photo of a man stretched out on one of these like carved wood blocks that they have just for casual sitting over there. And he it like, it like looks like he's sunbathing and his ribs are, are kind of sticking out. And I don't know if the sky is orange or if that's a billboard behind it, but I'm kind of in a moment in this particular photograph. I don't know what time of day it is. Um, I don't know if he's in trouble or not. 
I don't know if he's in relaxed or not. Like I could look at this photo a thousand different ways and tell a thousand different stories. Um, and oh, this isn't 34. Oh, it's right by the TKTS TS place. Okay, so this is more up in the 40s. But anyway, can you talk a little bit about this uh particular photograph and um and just you know what getting a shot like this means? Sure. There are two parts of my brain usually working when I'm walking around. One side is the journalism side, which is trying to find a photo that illustrates a story or a concept, a specific thing, um, in which case I kind of need to get confirmation. So, you know, sometimes you see someone laid out and um, it's easy to make an assumption about what they are doing or who they are or if they're on drugs or not. And oftentimes, uh, you know, I have to do due diligence of asking them or trying to figure out some definitive proof that they are indeed on drugs. The other half of my brain is just looking for moments, um, you know, and I, I think my primary love is street photography and just sort of finding these little moments. And so in this instance, I'm just wandering around looking for interesting things happening around Midtown and kind of like what you were alluding to before about, you know, to me, what's so beautiful about a, a city like New York is the fact that we share all these spaces together, right? And we we do a lot of things in public that I think in other places, smaller places happen in private um, or with fewer people around. So um, in this instance, I think he's just sunbathing and he could be homeless. Um, I'm not sure. But you know, it's this private moment in public. Um, and that's something that I'm constantly trying to find um, as a photographer. And as, you know, with the, the pandemic taught us and the kind of emptying of Midtown, um, it became the refuge of the homeless, the drug addicted, uh, the people who had nowhere else to go. Um, but as New York filled back up with workers and tourists and all that stuff. Those people still are around. And, and, uh, and so sometimes you do get these really interesting contrasts between, um, something that you would ordinarily think of as a private moment, but it's happening in front of a bunch of people. Um, and New York to me at its best is that it belongs to everyone. You can stop and drink a beer on a stoop or, you know, uh, hang out uh, on the street and and it it feels like it feels yours for a moment and then when you leave it belongs to someone else nothing strikes me so much as these private moments in public spaces than when you literally see people having their daily sleep basically you know we get uh 8 hours in a bed um, or on a train or in a car, if you work for, uh, if you work the night shift for <laughs> like a daily newspaper, but you know, you look at some of these and I'm, I'm talking about the shot right here on the train where you have one person underneath. Oh no, that's just a duffel bag. So it's one person on the train and he is asleep and his duffel bag um, is underneath because he's taken his shoes off for the evening. Um, and I think what happened when the city got empty was a lot of people really saw it wasn't just every, nobody's sitting on that bench and everybody's crowded around for rush hour, but there was no rush hour. So people really saw the people who had to be sleeping out there. Um, and what is it 
Now, let's talk a little bit about photographing homeless people while they're asleep. Um, so I think as a professional photographer, I look at this and I'm looking at you depict something, a private, a very private moment in a public space, uh, which has been talked about a lot around New York's, uh, houseless, but, uh, but when it comes to talking about the invasion of that privacy or photographing homeless people, where do you fall on that debate? Like what, when you are deciding to take a picture um, and deciding whether to go up to someone or not, what, what makes you decide to do, to do it? Just to jump in for one second there, you have photos of a guy jumping a turnstile, beautifully composed. A guy nodding out with uh, a needle in his arm outside and with uh, David, that firefighter, like actually shots of him using drugs, but also a shot of him. It's pretty remarkable in the middle of stealing from a department store. And uh, the homeless photo, the, the photo Alex mentioned earlier of the person presumably unhoused is sleeping on the train, like their face is recognizable, their faces in all these photos. And so I, I'd love to hear about your thought process and uh, how, how you think about the uh, the ethics of these and in public spaces and, and where you think boundaries are or should be. Sure. I, I think it's a, it's a complicated topic that at least for me, it runs through my head all the time. And it's, I don't have a specific line in the sand that I'm not willing to cross or um, there's no real way for me to explain, I guess, in absolute terms, what can and cannot be photographed. But it does, I guess I'll say the value of the photograph, which is, to me, if it's worth taking or not, has to do with those two categories, again, of journalism or street photography. So for journalism, to me, it's a little clearer cut because oftentimes we're trying to tell a specific story. So, for example, the guy sleeping in the subway car was about riders feeling uncomfortable about riding the subways again after the pandemic and the state of the subways. So to me, taking that photo for a journalistic purpose of explaining that sentiment and that reality of the situation is fine. Um, I think that if it's happening in public, then it it's able to be documented. And um, I think there are definitely delicate times where we have to tread a little lighter about that you know obviously you're not going to run up to someone and just start slamming a camera in their face unless you have to um but uh i think generally speaking for journalistic purposes it is our right and we should exercise this right to document things that are unfolding in public now on the other hand you know you look at things like street photography and the goal is a little murkier i'd say um Am I taking this photo because it has some sort of artistic composition or it, is it reflecting some kind of interior emotion of mine and I'm seeing it out in public? Um, to me, the stakes are a little higher on that one because it's harder to justify. So I will pass over the average um, shot of someone just sleeping or laying there unless it, it to me, is remarkable in some way. And and if it if it somehow is better than the others um and um but you know this debate goes goes 
in my mind all the time. Like I, I'm always questioning, should I be taking this photo? Is this photo worth taking? And more often than not, the negative thoughts win. The, the negative thoughts of saying, oh, don't take that photo. You're you're going to, you know, it's rude. It's getting in their face. It's, it's invading their privacy. It's, uh, it's not, the photo isn't that good anyways. And as a photographer, I think most of the time I'm, I'm spending my time trying to stop those voices from winning. Um, mm. and, um, you know, I heard a great talk with this guy, uh, Ruben Ratting, who's a really amazing street photographer that I love, um, and his work. And, uh, you know, he was talking about like, there's just so many of these little things going through your head, like, Oh, I'm tired. Uh, you know, my, my wife, uh, you know, is like pissed that I'm like, you know, out or like, you know, I, I spent too much money on drinks or whatever, you know, it's like, all you've got all these competing voices that they're telling you just to go home. And, um, that's the biggest barrier to street photography, you know, is just trying to get over that negativity and that negative thinking and on the other hand what makes street photography so exciting and fun in my opinion is the fact that it's kind of just going out not knowing what you're going to find and so you can have i can have like a bunch of negative thoughts and nothing's going to happen and then i turn a corner and suddenly it's something better than that than what i could have imagined in the first place eating a banana (laughs) spider-man eating a banana exactly um Again, speaking to that private moment in a public space and on 42nd Street, you know, you have all the people that dress up as characters for tips. And this one guy is, you know, he's got his, uh, he's got his Spider-Man mask off and he's just like, in, he's just hungry. Um, I, I love, uh, I love a lot of the ways you capture some of these private moments, especially, you know, a guy taking a nap on a bed in a mattress store. I mean, that for me is one of, it's just like, it's just so perfect. Like you couldn't have written that moment. If somebody had written the script of your life, they would have put in, Oh, the photographer walks down the street and there's a guy lying on a mattress. I mean, it's the, it's like the perfect setup for a photographer and you take the, you know, the perfect picture of it. And I like that. There's like a little, there's a little tinge of, that new york you know tea kettle about to boil um uh, sort of tapping something's about to spill over you have this one shot and i can't even say who the subject is uh, and this woman is bent over barefoot and she is in that pose that i see a lot in europe actually she's in a pose that's uh where she's just bowing head down on the street, but you have her from behind and, you know, presumably that there's a cup of change in front of her. And another woman is looking for directions and pointing some somewhere and she's older and the fold of her underarm skin is kind of showing. And another woman wearing a mask is trying to figure out where she's going with a wrinkled brow talking on the phone. And there's this, this urgency in New York, um, that you you capture better than I've seen in many other photographs in this one. And I really like it. And it's it's sort of tinged around a lot of these other photographs, even though they're private and serene moments. So one of my questions for you was as a journalist, when you're out there working, um, is that sometimes you get art, these art photos as well? 
like you'll see a shot and you'll say, well, that's not the job I'm working on. I'm going to snap that anyway. Or do you go out specifically on these sort of art photography walks? Like, how does that work with your life? How is it integrated? Especially now that you're like a new father and you don't have a lot of time. That's a great question. I mean, I I think I've struggled with this for all my career. I'll, I'll give you a short answer. The short answer is that one of the great things about doing work for a daily newspaper is, is being out on the street all the time. Um, I've learned so much through those daily assignments, but also in between those assignments. And so oftentimes, if there's a little bit of a lull between stories, I'll just walk around and try to capture these moments on my own, you know, before I get assigned something else. So just be, being able to being forced out of my apartment and into the street is just a huge, invaluable um, asset of working for a newspaper. Um, so I love taking these little jaunts around, um, you know, to see what's going on beyond the scope of what my assignment is. But, you know, it took me a long time to get to that place, too, because I think there's a point in in a lot of people's careers where you're just hyper focused on the assignment in, in front of you. and all the energy goes towards that. And then I didn't really feel like I had the creative juice anymore to then go and shoot what I want to shoot. Um, and, you know, that for me has been kind of like a merging of things. Um, so, you know, I think like a lot of creative people in the beginning, you start by copying, right. And like you, you see what you like and you try to copy and emulate it. And I, I went through that exact same process when I was trying to become a journalist because I don't come from a journalism background. So, you know, I would look at journalistic pictures and be like, okay, so this is what they're doing. I want to do that. So therefore I should just copy, um, you know, what they're doing. For example, for example, oh, uh, like who am I copying? Yeah, okay, so, what, mean, what are the elements of a composition you're picking up that way? Like, oh, they're doing this in the middle ground or this with the focal point or whatever. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think, you know, when I was first starting out uh, trying to be a journalist, I would look at a lot of the New York Times photographers, uh, Greg Heisler, um, Damon Winter, and you know, in the beginning, you're just trying to copy style, right? And like, you're trying to copy the way the light looks and trying to unpack um, what's going on, technically speaking, and, you know, what lens are they using? What camera they're using? Like all that stuff. What, what is the toning? Um, and, you know, I think I got stuck in that for a while of like trying to copy, copy, copy. And I try to erase my own personal style or the, the way that I wanted to see things. Um, and then at a certain point, I realized that just my copies were not very good, you know, and then I think people even told me that, you know, that like, well, this is pretty good, but it, it looks like you're trying to be a journalist, you know, and that's not really the, the path to success. And so um, people encouraged me to try to shoot the way I wanted to shoot. Um, and that's such a nebulous piece of advice to a, anyone aspiring to be a writer or a musician or a photographer. It's like, find your voice, be like, OK, well, how do I do that? Um, and in my case, the the way was just trying to do as many things as I could and a lot of them failing and eventually like, you know, um, me realizing what kind of photographer I am and what I like to do, what I'm drawn to. And it's it's a never ending process, right? Like it's something that will go on forever. And but that's part of the fun of doing this job. Like if I looked back on my 
stuff uh, from 10 years ago, some of it will have this innocence to it, some sort of kind of, I don't know, some kind of spark of the imagination that I don't feel now. And some of it will just be terrible. Uh, <laughs> and I think part of the process is like, you know, that that's a good thing, right? It's good to look at old photos and think, man, this sucks, you know, because that means that we're headed somewhere, right? And, and it's going in a direction, um, you know, if I get to the point where I'm looking at my old photos and they're all better than my current ones, then, you know, I think I have a problem. When I was 19 and starting to take some photos for the New York sun, or maybe I was 20, I was 19 or 20. Either way, I think one of my main goals was just not to fuck up, like not to screw up in the moment. Um, and I had all these, like when I would be not at work, I would have all these lofty goals in my brain. And then I would get to the thing I was supposed to photograph and I would just be like, please don't mess up. Please don't mess up. Please don't miss it. You know? And, um, all of the ideas I had in those first moments about trying to set up my shot and, and find the, the angle flew out the window. And I was just, I think a lot of young photographers working for newspapers really get caught off guard that they think they're going to have the time, but when they get out there at first, they just want to do a good job. So there's also that, that fear that swarms around it. So true. So true. Yeah, I mean, there's so many times like, you know, now in my daily life, even, you know, where I have an idea of how it's going to play out and and then it it doesn't. And I think what I've had to learn is how to shift my expectations to what's actually happening uh, quick enough, you know, because we do all want to do a good job. We want we have a certain idea of how it's going to work. But I have to say some of my favorite photos in the news context were when it did not happen as I thought it would. And there were actual technical limitations. Um, you know, there were some days where I was covering the protests in Brooklyn um, during 2020, and I had kind of the wrong camera, you know, like it was not a fast enough lens, like, you know, there was, um, you know, not really good at high ISO. And because of that, I had to like slow, slow my shutter speed. I had to throw a flash on there. And it was not what I wanted, but it actually ended up being better than what I expected. Um, and I love those parameters. And on the whole, I love parameters. I love that journalism gives me these parameters to work with. Um, I find myself much more creative within limitations than um, someone like a filmmaker or a fashion photographer who can conceive of a creative idea from nothing and just make it happen. Speaking of shutter speeds, and uh, some of these technical limitations, uh, the Post, I'm told, and I heard this at the Daily News too, traditionally always wanted flash photography and to avoid having too much contrast uh, because allegedly it costs uh, too much at the printers if you have all these <laughs> uh, deep blacks instead of grays. But your photos seem to have a lot of real black. Um, sometimes they're really interesting, like over or under exposures. So can I just ask uh, how you think about those elements in relation to to your work and your journalistic work? And then just to just for our, our listeners real quick, some of these photos, if you're not looking at them right now, but just going to search for them later, like there is a lot to Stephen Yang's photography that is almost takes on a Baroque painting um, type of feel with, you know, deep really, really just like deep and dark colors contrasted by rings of light and things like that. So 
Um, yeah. So some of these are very moody and not at all what you would expect the post to want, which is like big flash perp walk, you know, kind of thing. These are artsy. <laughs> it's very kind of you both. Uh, I really, um, you know, I guess I'll, I'll say this in two different ways. One is that it's true. I, I love that you brought up this idea of the post wanting um, flash and full length vertical because that is still burned in my brain. <laughs> I still, when I'm shooting, think, oh, shit, did I get a full length vertical, even if it does not make sense at all for the assignment. Um, but, you know, the flip side of that is that I learned how to use a flash. Um, you know, like I, I really did not. I, I fancied myself, like many others, a natural light photographer, someone who only takes photos of um, available light. And um, because the post had those really, in my mind, arbitrary, um, you know, restrictions, it taught me how to use a flash. Um, and um, now it's funny that it, flash has become kind of like in vogue um, in the photography world and even in the journalism world. Um, Harsh but, flash. Uh, Harsh flash, yeah. But that's sort of like the look in my mind of like the post of like that kind of like on camera hard light look. Um, and to be honest, sometimes it does look better. Um, I think for court cases and perp walks, like it does add a bit of drama. It feels more in line with Ouija and that kind of lineage of the gritty New York stuff. Um, but you know, like. I was afraid to to show my what I liked, you know, to the post uh, and to any of the clients that I shot for over the years. I think, again, I, for a lot of time, I was stuck in this idea of like, they want this. I should provide that, you know, like that's that's what it is. That's why they're hiring me. And, and you know, over the years, uh, people have told me the opposite, actually. You know, it's like they already have what they shot or was shot before, you know, like try to bring them something new, try to bring them something different. Um, and that led me down a different path of trying to just shoot it the way I wanted to shoot it, sometimes with too much contrast or with funny colors or whatnot. And, you know, the post has actually been very tolerant of it. Um, I'm still kind of waiting for them to, you know, for the phone call to be like, hey, uh, can you just like shoot it normal, you know, like and not <laughs> all in that fucked up way. <laughs> um, but so far, you know, they they've they've been pretty supportive of it. And, uh, you know, they recently got a new photo director, uh, in the last few years. Who's, who's really opened up. I think a lot of the stylistic choices we can make and encouraging us to think about things outside the traditional tabloid parameters, which has been hugely helpful just psychologically, you know, going out there with the ability to have a little more creative freedom. Speaking of, uh, transitions in your, both professional and artistic practice and how they intersect. Can we talk a little bit about you starting to also be the reporter and writer um, and starting to uh, create features and not just photo series, but features that you also write the story of um, and, and how that transition happened. And if I'm, I might be incorrect. Uh, of many years ago when I first met you just uh, just as a friend you were really interested in the buses that went to Atlantic City and um and, and and photographing that and then more recently you have this amazing in-depth emotional piece 
about an ex-FDNY guy who gets caught up in addiction and he allows you to go with him and photograph him. And you also made the words. So what, can you tell me a little bit about that transition? Um, Had it been in the works for a while? Was it something you just sort of stepped into and tried out and then you really dove in? How did it work? Were you nervous? All of that. Originally, I wanted to be a writer. Um, I studied literature in college, and I guess I I wanted to be an academic, but I I realized pretty quickly I didn't have the chops for that. Um, And I I wrote, did some writing, creative writing, things like that in high school and college. Um, Most of it pretty terrible. And um, I kind of fell into photography just as something that I like to do. Um, and um, I I just kind of kept on going with the photography and it, it ended up being a pretty decent job and uh, just kept me outside all the time, which I really wanted. And, you know, specifically with the FDNY piece, that was because I'd been going around photographing sleeping addicts for you know, days, um, you know, people passed out, people in the midst of uh, nodding out, things like that. And it, at a certain point, part of me felt like it was wrong. It felt like I should engage with them and try to talk to them. And and then also just from an aesthetic point of view, I was getting the same photo over and over again. Um, it was just someone passed out. And so I just walked up to this guy and he was unwrapping some heroin from his wallet uh, and those little like glassine packets or something. And um, I just introduced myself. I said, Hey, I'm a photographer. I'm doing a story about heroin use. Do you mind if I, you know, photograph you and like hang out? And he just said yes immediately, which is not what I was expecting. I really thought he was going to tell me to go fuck myself, you know? Um, and uh, he let me follow him around all day, um, interviewing him uh on video taking photos uh and i was a little shy about it you know like i I didn't want to be like okay are you going to do some heroin now like i I knew it would come up at some point but he kind of just broke the ice immediately was like do you want to see me do heroin like within the first 15 minutes and i was like okay um so you know i I watched him do heroin and it was uh the first time i'd actually seen the entire process you know of like pulling it through the cigarette filter into a syringe and injecting it and then the the immediate effect of it, which was, to be quite honest, pretty kind of frightening um, how powerful it was. And I realized as he was kind of nodding out, uh, we hadn't talked about, like, should I call for help at some point? You know, should I, you know, seek some sort of aid for him? I mean, because as he was nodding out, I, I was just thinking, like, what am I going to do? Am I just, just going to, like, keep on taking photos of this guy while while he dies? Like, that doesn't seem right. Um, but, you know, thankfully he kind of like snapped out of it at a certain point and we were able to have that conversation. And he told me, you know, kind of point blank, like call the cops if I turn blue. And, um, you know, that was a pretty stark moment. Um, but, you know, he, he was very excited to have me around in a lot of ways. Um, I, I kept on asking him over the course of the day, like, you know, uh why did you say yes like why did you agree to this um and i just sensed like a deep sense of loneliness within him you know this idea that he he just wanted to someone to have an interest in him you know and um 
the shame around drugs was mine, not his, you know, like I, I was ashamed of the effects of the drugs, the procurement, the administering. Um, but he was not ashamed of it. He, that's his daily life. And so he saw nothing wrong with it. Um, and you know, he took me, um, shoplifting, which was pretty exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, I fretted over whether we should use those images. Uh, I talked, had many, you know, talks with the editor at the post about, you know, like, is this going to like get him arrested? Is, am I complicit? Am I going to get subpoenaed? And, you know, the editor was like, you're thinking about this way too hard. You know, <laughs> it's, it, they're not going to care. Um, and nothing ended up happening uh, because of those photos. Also, I think it's a misdemeanor. I, I actually think like a lot of people come, you know, it's a whole debate right now, how soft we are on uh, like shoplifting by, by addicts and a lot of, you know, your, your law and order, your law and order guys in New York right now uh, talk about how it, it's a scourge on New York, you know, small, small time shoplifting. But I don't think basically, I don't think he would have gotten sent up the river. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. I was worried about how much he was taking. He, he took quite a, quite a few items from uh, an electronic store, but so, okay. So I, I ended up spending around six, seven hours with him. Um, I'm getting kind of tired by the end of it. And I feel like we've kind of gone through the cycle of the doing the heroin a couple times, the stealing. Um, and I was getting tired and I felt like, okay, I've got a pregnant wife at home. I should probably get home. Um, and I made a big mistake, right? I, I made a mistake. Like I, I left, uh, thinking that I'm going to be able to find this guy like tomorrow. Um, and, uh, he gave me the phone number of his mom and his girlfriend. So I was thinking like, all right, well, you know, it'll be okay. I can find him. So I go home and for the next 12 or 14 days, I go out trying to find him. I can't find him at all. Um, all the spots where we went, I went to the store he went to, uh, to buy hair dye. I went to the spot where he was shooting heroin, where he hung out. I, I did the loop, you know, between the heroin dealers on, uh, 42nd and 8th and, and, you know, the methadone clinic and the like 39th and 8th. Um, and I just could not find him at all. And I felt like such an idiot. Because I could have shown so many more things, right? I could have gone back to where he stayed. I could have met his girlfriend. I could have shown him eating something. I could have, you know, just really like shown a lot more of this guy's life instead of just heroin and stealing, which to me was the most was very exciting. But it was not the full picture of what this of who this person is. Um, and I just had this huge regret. Um, and so the only thing I could think of doing after, you know, a, a few days of looking for him was to start transcribing all the interviews. And so I transcribed all the, the text that, you know, all the things we talked about. And I wrote down all the things we did. And partly it was just because I was frustrated. But then by the end of it, I realized that I had kind of an article. Um, and so just out of, you know, curiosity, I, I emailed the editor and I said, hey, like, you know, I, I can't find him. But I, I wrote this thing like, you know, um, kind of explaining what happened. Like, you know, do you mind taking a look at it? And they they were very supportive and they really liked uh, the writing. Um, and they um, the editor in chief, uh, you know, really helped me a lot very closely, you know. Um, to edit it. He streamlined it. He took out some of the parts and, uh, but he was very protective of my vision for it, which I really appreciated. You know, he really kept on like 
making it clear that he didn't want to change it too much. He wanted it to have the same essence of uh, what it felt like. Um, so it was really a very positive experience to be like taken under the wing of like a really good editor and like, you know, have them just take all your jumbled stuff and put it into like this really um, more succinct uh, piece. And um, God bless editors. <laughs> yeah, seriously. No, really. It's such an essential part that never gets seen. Um, and I, uh, after that, I think they gave me a little bit more leeway. Um, and also just for myself, like I, I became a little more confident in this idea of like, I can gather some quotes and put them together. Um, and, uh, if they want to use it, then great. If they don't, then that's fine too. But, um, it, it was really nice to like kind of come back to writing after all these years because I just really lost sight of it completely. Um, you know, since college. Have you seen or heard from David since the peace ran? I, I've been in touch with his mom. And actually, I was meaning to reach out again um, because we've been doing all these stories about Trank. And I was actually wondering to myself the other day whether when I photographed him, he was actually shooting Trank and fentanyl um, and not um, heroin because quite a, quite a number of uh, People have been telling us that heroin hasn't been on the street for at least five years or so. Um, but I, I talked to his mom after. I, I went and I drove over and I met his mom uh, in Staten Island and we did an interview and um, she shared some old photos of David and uh, we did some photos of her. And she was just so nice and like very transparent about her experiences. And so I followed up with her after the article ran and, and she said that he was upset. And he didn't like the article, um, but she was very kind and said, like, you know, I don't blame you, you know, and people don't always want to see what they look like. Um, and she really she was not angry. She was very um, she was very nice about it. Um, but I, I did lose touch with her. Uh, I, I followed up with her probably two or three more times after that, just to see if he was ready to see me again and I, I i'm always like in the back of my head thinking I, i'm gonna bump into him in midtown and you know for me like the 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 perfect follow-up you know would be that he ends up getting clean and uh we can do a follow-up story about you know his process of getting sober and uh seeing what that looks like but um i i i haven't heard from his mom in, in a while now when we had Susan Watts on and she was talking about uh, her Gloria photos, she she actually did do that sort of follow-up and then was telling us that afterward uh, she ended up returning to her addiction. And then that, that wasn't a story at that point, of course. Um, and it's always complicated, you know, as journalists figuring out what the, uh, what the beginning, the middle, and especially the end is. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for taking all this time. Um, people are interested. They can find a whole bunch more of your work at stephenyangphoto.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-Y-A-N-G, photo.com. And uh, just to close out here, um, yeah. I've been on those Atlantic City buses. And the ones that come back, you know, when, when you're giving up at four, 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, and you come back and it's just like, messed up defeated gamblers plus it, people 
from, uh, you know, Jersey, Northern Jersey, who are trying to like just commute to work in the city and they're just sharing a bus. And it's such an interesting, sad collection of characters, a few different ways. Uh, but do you want to talk a bit about the uh, photographers who've uh, who've influenced you and, uh, you know, uh, and how, how you've thought about uh, uh, their work as you were um, imitating and coming into your own and that? Just one side note. I actually, I don't think the Atlantic City buses was me, but um, I, I did do a story on dollar vans. Maybe, maybe that's what it was uh, a oh, long time you ago know what? in Brooklyn. Sorry, that's that is what I was thinking of. Um, but it's a great mistake. idea. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but uh, no, no, it was when you were doing the dollar vans, uh, dollar vans one. Yeah, no worries. That's right. Um, FAQ NYC field trip. On the AC buses. <laughs> the dollar vans are going away, aren't they? I don't know. That, uh, Jose Martinez has done a fair amount about this. You can read at the city. At the city. <laughs> didn't have thought. So cool that you guys are part of the city now, too. I I, I thought that I didn't realize that. Um, so uh, I, I think when I was first starting out as a photographer, I had no sense of this being a job or even of journalism. I just like to take pictures. And uh, I was very afraid of people. Um, I, I didn't want to take photos of people at all. Um, I just took photos of shadows and street scenes and um, patterns and things like that. And I, I probably did that for the first, I don't know, five, 10 years of my photography. Um, I really was afraid to approach people um even to pose people any of that stuff just terrified me and, and still to this day kind of does um and uh but the first time i think i saw a photo series that really moved me was nan golden's ballad of sexual dependency i think that's right there was a it was in a gallery i think it was at the ace gallery and they had it playing with this Bjork song. It was a slideshow and it was all these different portraits and kind of candid moments put together with this uh, chant. I think it's called like Kyrie Ellison or something. Um, and uh, it was just mesmerizing to sit in this gallery and watch these amazing photos of people and things be mixed together with this, this hypnotic music. Um, and, uh, and that really made me want to shoot people. You know, made me realize that I can shoot a million shadows, um, but there's something about the variable of people that will be endless. Um, you know, the it's an endless variable, whether it's a person on the street or it's your best friend. You know, you can just keep on shooting it and get new results over and over and over again. And, um, you know, I, I was also influenced by Walker Evans, the subway series. Uh, many are called um, this idea of just like freezing people in time and, and being able to look back and, and seeing the similarities, you know, you, you look at some of those photos and it looks like someone, the clothes are different, the everything is different, but the face is the same, you know, it's like that, mm -hmm. like, I know that person, you know, that tired guy on the, on the subway or the guy leering at the girls, you know? Um, oh, I was uh, just quickly when, when a long time ago, a friend of mine and I were shooting fishmongers down at the Fulton street fish market in like 2004, we when we put together all the footage we found some old school footage there was two guys arguing just over some bullshit like nothing serious and we had had uh recorded it. and then when we went to archival footage we found like 
the same, almost the same <laughs> argument with the same physical motions caught on film between two fish guys. And we cut them side by side. And it was really kind of amazing to see that through line, that commonality, you know, over the ages. Um, I love that. I love that about photography, you know, and like, I forget someone said this, but they were like, you know, if you want a good photo, just take it and then wait 40 years. Cause like, it's just, <laughs> it, it'll get better. Like, you know, and, and even the little most banal scenes become just so magical because of those, like you said, the continuities and, and then all the things that are different, uh, which is what also makes shooting New York so fun because a lot of it, um, can look the same, you know, even, even a hundred years later. Um, and, uh, that's part of the romance of taking photos is like participating in that. Um, I was also a big fan of, um, Philip Lorca de Corsia, uh, did the hustler series where he paid male hustlers, like the amount I think that he would have to pay for a sexual service, but to take their portrait. Um, and, and that's him and, but he lit it in this kind of like, almost high fashion advertising way. Um, and to me, that was, again, this idea of like bridging reality with uh, art, um, which is, you know, to me, what's the most fun about um, photography is reality is, is the strangest of all. Um, and, and it is endlessly entertaining to, to look at reality. Stephen, that's a beautiful closing note. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and taking the time. I uh, hope we'll continue this conversation. Thank you, guys. I'm really honored. And you guys said so, such nice things, you know, like I really uh, it, it feels nice to be, you know, to have people have an interest in my work. You know, it, it's um, it's really just a, such a nice thing to to be profiled. So I really appreciate you guys you know, taking an interest and putting in the time to, to put it together. I really enjoyed listening to your other, your episodes, um, uh, with Susan and, um, and who's on Ben. Yeah. It was really cool. Oh, Ben, I, I bought, um, I bought a, a pigeon photo off him because he nice. was like, he said, Oh, you know, for a print, it was something on Instagram. It was before I really knew him that well. And his pigeon photo is great. And you have one here, which are two pigeons, like looking so in love against <laughs> against not like not the famous part of a New York skyline, but you know it's New York because like the buildings are the way they are and the sky is gray. And I'm just like, I gotta ask Stephen because I just want I want a room filled entirely with pigeon photos from like really good New York photographers. Absolutely, um, I will absolutely so. get you that print. <laughs> awesome, thank you. Yeah, I'll pay. Yourself. I'll pay. No, you don't have to. It's, 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 I'd be honored to be part of the pigeon wall. FAQ. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/give if you'd like to pitch in. We're an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at Populate.com. Our hosts this episode were Alex Brooklyn and me, Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. Special thank you to our guest, Stephen Yang. All four of those people 
being native New Yorkers. Hooray for us, I suppose. Thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool. We'll be back soon with more. Cut! Cut, cut. Excellent. I was going to say, I didn't, it was too much, but I was going to tell you, Stephen, the best photo I passed up or the best profile, the best guy to talk to. There was this guy who I ran into on the corner of uh, Christopher and 7th Avenue, and he was helping the guys. Like There was this group of, of addicts that hung out there for years. And one guy who was on and off methadone, so he had you know the swollen calves and everything. And he his injection sites, when he you know wasn't on methadone or doing heroin anyway or whatever, his injection sites were getting really, really bad. Plus he had diabetes. So this guy, I think I remember his name being Ernie. He was like dressing their wounds and helping him keep the feet clean and everything. I was oh, wow. like, hey, and he goes, yeah, yeah. I call myself, you know, a street medic. And the other guy was like, yeah, he used to be a nurse. And I said, great. Can I, you know, I, re- I was in a rush. I, I really got to go. Can I please get your number? He's like, well, I don't have a cell phone, but my friend, Adam, this is the cell phone. You can leave a message for me there, et cetera. You know the deal. And I was like, yeah, okay. And I just, I don't know what appointment. I, I'll never remember what appointment I was going to fucking <laughs> run for, but I will always remember that guy. And I will always, always regret not blowing off whatever i had to blow off and talking to him uh, I, I feel like though that like you got to have that the, that feeling right i mean like that's what that feeling allows you you know to the next time you see something to be like oh shit i know how valuable that is and like you know it, it and, and that's sort of one of the things that's lost with film and digital like because film was like kind of expensive precious, and scarce yeah. yeah, scarce. Like, you know, there was a sense of missing it or choosing not to do it. And then, like, when it really, like, you know, meant something, then taking it, you know. And, yeah, um, yeah so I, I think you need that sense of loss to just be a creative person. <laughs> I think it's actually a net gain for you. <laughs> yeah.